You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin, as we always do, by calling in the spirits. So I call out first to your ancestors and then to mine. I call out to all of those who lived well and died well in our ancestral lines, those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful in that lineage to each one of us, those who have turned back to us to help us, the living, to live in a better way, to understand what it is that we are here to do and to do it in a way that draws richly on the lessons learned by those who have gone before us. I call out to these people on whose shoulders we stand and ask them to be with us and help us, help us to do what must be done at this time so that things are made ready for those who are coming we ask these ancestors to gather around us here today and we give gratitude for life we give gratitude for the protection that they offer us and we ask them to help them to support us and what it is that we are called to do in this day we give thanks to these ancestors and their presence in each day and each night And with the ancestors gathered round, we reach down to that most critical ancestor, the earth, and we take a moment and honor the earth. We give thanks to the earth and take a moment, detach from all the ins and outs and ups and downs and plans of the day and take a moment to just be with a great gratitude for this day, the gratitude for life. Whether it's a good day or a bad day, a good mood or a bad mood, it is life. And life means you have a possibility to change, to transform, to bring love to the world in some way. So we give thanks for life. We give thanks for the beauty and the diversity and the amazing magic of life on this planet. And we give thanks in this moment for the wonder for the great mystery inherent in it all. We give thanks for the fact that there are things we will never completely understand. And this makes life interesting. So we give thanks to this part of the dream of the earth that gave us curiosity, the ability to seek and to understand and to find and to come to love and to know. So we give thanks to the earth for all of this that makes life what it is. And then extend our energy down, down through all the layers of the earth, giving our gratitude as we go, reaching down to the layers of the earth, to the very center of the earth. We connect to that energy there, grounding ourselves, making this choice, this choice to be responsible, energetic human beings in this day. We ground our energy there in the center of the earth and draw this energy up, drawing up into our body's restoration and rejuvenation, replenishment. Drawing up this energy that brings with it all the wisdom of manifestation, that we can know how to be here in form in a good way, to be here in a good way for all living things, for all the other many things in form. So we give thanks to the energy of the earth as it rises up and as it comes up into our bodies, into our bellies and our hearts and our minds. Let us draw on this energy to come to understand what it means to be grounded in your body in this day on this planet. 
We draw on this energy to understand the feeling of home and hearth and to understand it in a way that it goes with us no matter where we are, that it is not tied to a particular place, to a particular time, but that we can bring this confidence of belonging with us so that our hearth and home is open to others, particularly those who are different than we are. So we give thanks to this energy that comes from the earth and we draw on this energy to help us to connect, to help us to feel the interconnection of things and ultimately this great web of life and extend for a moment out of the busyness of the day into the oneness of all things. And from that oneness, let us take right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment and right relationship with the spirit world. And may we learn from the earth and those things around us in nature how to cultivate this right relationship in the way we choose to live our life. And so with the earth's energy replenishing, restoring, and renewing us, let us reach up. Up from the heart to the mind and the mind out through the sky. Whatever weather the sky holds for you today, out through the weather and through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos. We reach our energy up through all the layers of the sky, all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know this power, name it. See yourself in it and it in you and draw this energy down. With great gratitude, we draw into our life, into our day, into these proceedings. We draw the energy of blessing. We draw the energy of protection and devotion and benevolence and generosity. We draw these energies in through all the layers of the sky, into our head, our heart, and our belly. And we take a moment and experience that feeling as the energy of the sky extends all the way down to the center of the earth. And these two great lovers come together in us, in the human, earth and sky, yin and yang, fire and ice. We feel these two great lovers merged within us in this dance of complementary dualism. And in that dynamic and beautiful tension, we invite the spirit of the heart to awaken. And we invite the heart to be that amazing power that it is that can hold the fiery passions of the belly and the crystal cool clarity of the mind, can hold these energies together without destroying either and letting them dance, letting them be together in such a way that they can finally give birth to that third thing, that memory in the heart, that knowing of why you are here. And may you reach into that human heart and draw into this day the courage you need to do something, large or small, to bring your gifts into the world. And for all of this spirit help, so abundant around us, the ancestors, the earth, the sky, the hearts, the connection of all things, we give thanks. And I give thanks to you, to Christy, to Angie, Sarah, and Mark, and all of the listeners who have been able to donate financially to the show. If this show is meaningful to you in any way, you are able to donate by going to whyshamanismnow.com. You can donate any currency and any amount, large or small. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And I am deeply grateful for the large donations, but also for the small, because it is unlikely I will ever receive a $5,000 donation but it is very likely that a thousand of you could donate five. And so I thank you for all of the small gestures that come that help to make this show real and to keep it present, keep it a presence on the internet. Because without your help, 
I could not do that. And so I'm also thankful for all of you that offer in other ways, offer your questions, offer your feedback to me about how you've used something you heard on a show and it did something in your life, especially when it does something in your life that's valuable. So I just, I give thanks to all of you for everything you're doing to help to keep the show alive, to help to keep it relevant and to help to keep it on the air. So if this show moves you in any way, it moves you to inspiration or irritation. You have been moved in the heart. And this is the fundamental act that shamanism around the world teaches us to allow ourselves to be motivated into action through the motivations of the heart. And so I ask you to be motivated by the heart and do something in your life to help the show to grow if, uh, if you've been moved in that way. So thank you all. And I give thanks to co-creatornetwork.com and to Ken for helping us keep the show alive and on the air in a way uh, that is in alignment with our own beliefs and principles. So thank you, everyone. Um, I couldn't do this without you. So we are live this week. If you have questions about today's topic, you are invited to call in at 512-772-1938. Or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site or email me at Christina at lastmaskcenter.org. So the topic of the show today is the shaman's power. And there's um, an enormous amount of speculative information about the shaman's power uh, in academia. But of course, in academia, they also used to just have a blanket statement that shamans were schizophrenics. So I think we have to really question um, all, all that is out there to be read about the shaman's power. I personally find uh, most of it tiresome because I think whether we're talking about um, power that is believed to come from initiations in caves or spirit flight or climbing a rope up to the cosmos or um, deep, deep energies at the bottom of the sea or all of the many, many different explanations that are cultural about the shaman's power, that the bottom line remains that connects all of them is that it is always about the shaman's relationship with this sacred energy. So the shaman's power to help and to heal comes from the spirits. And the word spirit is a poor and misleading translation of the indigenous terms used by shamans around the globe. And I've discussed this before, but it's the same idea that spirit implies certain things in the English language that really aren't appropriate. That this sacred power that comes to the shaman Uh, This power, energy, spirit, whatever we want to call it, it's called mana by the Maori and the Melanesians, orenda or oki by the Iroquois, wonkin by the Sioux, koen by Athapaskan, yoke by the Tinklet, and aspects of Manitou by the Algonquin, to name just a few of the many, many, many other words by which this energy is called. And none of these words can be truly translated. That this life force-like power is inherent in all things things with and without form. And in the shaman's world, where the manifestations of this energy can be frightening and the related dangers grave, it is always honored for it connects all things. And so this is from an encyclopedia of shamanism. 
Okay, full disclosure. As I said, I'm not a big fan of the academic answers to these questions, the speculation, the psychology, um, because there's just too many words written by people who haven't had the experience and by people who would actually dismiss the experience of the shaman as not being correct and interpret it by their own contemporary terms. And I personally prefer an answer that is based on how shamans describe their own experience. The idea that a human could control a power so vast and diverse is frankly absurd. However, some humans can master the art of being in relationship with this sacred power. And the shaman is this type of human. The shaman is a master of the sacred technologies technologies used to enter the altered states that allow a human to be in relationship with the sacred power. In this relationship, the sacred power provides the energy and awareness while the shaman guides this energy and awareness into the physical realm in a way that helps those of us here in physical form. This relationship between the shaman and the spirits is mostly misunderstood. This misunderstanding arises in part because we don't have the words to accurately describe the relationship and in part because we don't have the experience to easily understand it. Simply put, the relationship between the shaman and the spirits is a practical working relationship. As with all effective working relationships, each party brings something unique to the relationship and derives something from it. The spirits bring the guidance and the power the shaman needs to do the shaman's work. The shaman brings the ability to translate and focus these energies from the invisible world into the physical world to accomplish specific tasks. So if you can't focus these experiences or energies in a way that is useful to yourself or others, then you aren't a shaman yet. It doesn't matter how many times you've entered that altered state. It doesn't matter how easily you go there. It doesn't matter how vast and important and transformative your experiences are that you find there. If you are not able to manage yourself in such a way that you can focus, translate and focus these energies back into the physical world in a way that is beneficial for living things, not just humans, but all living things, then you're not a shaman. The shaman gains the ability to be a shaman, to work with powerful forces to create healings from this working relationship with the sacred power. What the spirits gain in this working relationship is frankly a mystery. Perhaps it is the opportunity to express their essence in the world. Perhaps it's the opportunity to help to create reconciliation and balance. I really don't know. Whatever it is, they do gain something, for they reach out to humans again and again. They initiate us, and they make some of us shamans, as if it is important to them to do so. In this mysterious way, the relationship between the shaman and the spirits is an interdependent relationship. In other words, the spirits cannot simply come and do everything that needs to be done. If that were true, with all the praying and the desperation and the suffering that is going on, it would be fixed. It would be healed. But the point is they can't. There are rules basically, they're in the energy world. And that for, for the 
this spirit world, for lack of a better word, to be able to come in and to affect human suffering in a positive way, to affect the suffering of the environment in a positive way. There needs to be this interrelationship. But for this interdependent relationship to happen, the human being has to be willing to become someone who can translate and focus this energy in a useful way. The entering the altered state in and of itself is not enough. Communing with trees is not enough. That it is about becoming a person who can be effective and work in this relationship over time with this sacred energy. So the most common misunderstanding of this relationship is the idea that the shaman controls the spirits, that he is the master of spirits. That's a very typical um, definition of shaman that you will see, the master of spirits. And it's easy to understand how people seeing through the lens of Western culture that defines power almost exclusively in terms of dominance and control would interpret whatever the indigenous word was as a relationship in terms of control, that would see it as master of the spirits. Yet we know from the words of the shamans that the spirits give everything that makes a human a shaman and that they can take it all away just as easily. And that shamans themselves claim no control over this aspect of the relationship. They don't claim to be masters of the spirits. In fact, they explain that around these issues, the shaman must remain truly humble. What the shamans do claim is success in the struggle, the human struggle, to gain control over themselves, over his or her personal state, while in the extremes of these altered states, and to to gain personal control that is necessary to work with these powers that come through the invisible world. In other words, the shaman becomes the master of relationship with spirit, not the master of spirit. So this mastery of oneself while in relationship with spirit is the defining difference between the shaman and the ayahuasca tourist or the crazy person or this person who simply learned a journey at the workshop. There's nothing wrong with any of these people, but the fact of being able to enter these altered states via ayahuasca, via mental distress, via journeying, these does not define someone as a shaman. It is the mastery of oneself while in relationship with the spirit world that defines the shaman. The shaman's ability to control his or her altered state of consciousness without physical illness, without mental instability, or death, frankly, is essential. So the shaman's ability to make sense out of the experience in a way that heals and does not harm the intended recipient is fundamental to what actually begins to be the standard from which we evolve from humans who can enter altered states to humans who are actually validly considered shamans. A shaman is able to control him or herself in a range of altered states to enter and and exit these states at will and most importantly to accurately interpret while in these states 
and to do so in a way that is effective for others, effective for, effective for the environment, um, effective for the descendants who are coming. So the shaman uses this range of altered states as tools, selecting the correct altered state necessary to accomplish the task at hand. In contrast, a mentally ill person unintentionally enters altered states and is usually inaccurate or unclear in naming the invisible beings uh, with whom they are speaking. Uh, There is no accuracy, there is no self-control, there is no precision or efficacy in the altered state experienced in a state of mental illness. And this this is a very important distinction. And, and it's important to understand in the initiatory, traditional shamanic initiations that appear uh, as, a, as an initial state of mental illness, the most important thing about what defines that complete experience as an initiation is that the person finds their way out of that illness themselves. And that's how they become the person that can be considered the shaman. It's not that they simply have this experience, this altered, altered state, you know, crazy three-day experience with spirit, that they're being challenged or tested. That in and of itself doesn't, isn't a shamanic initiation. It's an initiation if you actually fix the problem. And that's the separation be- between everyday humans and shamans is the shaman can find his or her way out of his or her own forest. That's what makes it initiation. Not just that you got spit out by the skin of your teeth from a crazy experience, but that you found that place of inner resolution that allowed you to reconcile the experience in such a way that you now have the confidence to guide others in their craziness because you know your way through your own. So the misunderstanding about the shaman's working relationship with spirit is further confused by the assumption that possession, which is an illness, is the same state of consciousness as embodiment, which is a trance state intentionally employed by shamans. So a shaman uses embodiment to bring a known helping spirit into his or her physical body to allow that spirit to work through the body to heal other people and the, or the land or whatever. Okay. And the mastery of this trance state is essential for extractions and other cleansing work. Okay. The entry of of the spirit or whatever we want to call this energy, the sacred power into the body of the shaman is intentional and it is focused by the shaman. The shaman directs the power of the spirit toward a defined goal, like removing a source of illness from a patient's body or giving guidance through divination to a community. In contrast, the entry of a possessing entity into the body of a victim is unintentional on the victim's part, the person's part. The power of the possessing spirit overpowers the intention, um, the mental focus, the energy, the boundaries of the victim, thwarting that person's control over his or her own personal state. One cannot work as a shaman 
with focus and intention in a state of possession. I mean, think about it, people. The whole point of an actual possession state is you have no capacity to or you have diminished capacity to focus your intent. And the whole essence of someone who is a shaman is that they have the capacity to be in these heightened altered states and stay focused on the task at hand and to to interpret and intend and direct that energy towards um, the, the end that we've all gathered for, be it cleansing or extraction or soul retrieval or whatever it is. So when a shaman gathers power and goes to work, he or she enters an altered state in the way that you enter the office or the store that you work in. That shamans meet the helping spirits in that altered state in the same way that you meet your coworkers at the office or behind the counter. The shaman goes about performing the tasks with the spirits in the way that you work with your coworkers. It is not necessary for you to control or possess your coworkers, uh, nor they you to get the job done. The best results come when all workers communicate accurately, respect each other, and do their best to perform their part of the job. And the same is true for the shaman and the helping spirits that he or she works with. It is a working relationship of communication and mutual respect in which each party does its unique part to get the overall job done. It's not random. It's not um, it's not random different helping spirits. It's, uh, it's very regular. It's dependable that the, that the relationship between a shaman and their helping spirits is their primary long-term relationship. And that those who love shamans must accept that they will always come second because these relationships that the shaman cultivates with their helping spirits, which is usually a handful, um, it's not gajillions and it's not random, um, that this is the primary relationship for that person and that that there's much uh, in, in everyday life that is done to cultivate those relationships. So the shamans are in relationship with the spirit, spirits in a very deep and at times complex and always very real ways. The relationship is always experiential. It is not faith-based. Shamans do not believe in spirits. They experience them. Like I don't believe in the air. I experience it with each breath. It's absurd to ask me whether or not I believe in air. Right? Do I believe in water? You know, it's silly. Okay, so shamans work with the power that flows to them while in relationship with spirit. And this power is also complex and it is variable. And in that, it is hard to define. It is in part wild. It is a power of nature, uh, which is in form all around us. But it is also in part the power of the unknown and that which is not yet in form. And this is um, a large part of why shamans with the benefit of spirit are able to help provoke or create transformation or change. Because we're not just working with what's in form, but we're working with what's not yet in form, with the unknown. 
So there are three defining characteristics in the working relationship forged between the spirits and the shamans. So the first is this non-ordinary energy of sacred origin. Now, not all shamanic peoples believe or conceive of this um, non-ordinary sacred energy as being helping spirits, as being an energy that is outside of the shaman coming to the shaman to work. Most do, but not all. And it, for example, the, the sand people or the kung are, are um, sort of renowned in their dancing that brings up the num, that brings up this non-ordinary energy of sacred origin through the shaman, through the spirit of the dance. And, um, but, but it's still understood to have a sacred origin that the, that the human is able to access through dance, um, through the heating up. And so it's important that no, even for the shamanic people that don't conceive of things as operating through helping spirits, even in that small, um, kind of subset of shamanic peoples it's still believed to be a non-ordinary energy of sacred origin and it's this energy that enables the human to be and being in relationship with this energy that enables the human to become a shaman to offer healing energy to others and so um, it's important that this non-ordinary energy of sacred origin um so is the energy that brings the shaman the power of the shaman and that it doesn't really matter whether we define it as bear spirit or num or um, some energy that comes through a particular song or a mantra. The whole point of it is that it is still this non-ordinary energy of sacred origin. And a shaman must make a direct connection to a sacred source, to this, to this sacred source of non-ordinary energy to perform acts of shamanism. So in other words, you know, the helping spirits come to us to help us because frankly we need it. That in and of itself does not mean you've tapped this sacred origin. And so there, there, is, there, there is more to being a shaman than the ability to journey. And so then a second uh, defining characteristics of a true working relationship, a shamanic working relationship is that the shaman must cultivate his or her uh, working relationship personally. Each individual must survive meeting spirit, being tested by spirit, and trained by spirit to successfully forge a working relationship. So you can't really just learn how someone else does it. That, that doesn't count. That isn't shamanism. You can't just learn to go through the emotions that some other shaman goes through, that for it to truly be shamanism and the true power of the shaman, each individual person must cultivate this relationship personally, meeting the spirit energy, being taken to that sacred source, that sacred origin energy, being tested by this energy and trained by this energy to bring your unique gifts out through this relationship. So then the third thing, the third characteristic that is that really defines this working relationship with the shaman is that the spirits choose the shamans. Shamans don't choose shamans. That all a shaman can do is attempt to forge a working relationship or all a human can do 
I would say, is attempts to forge a working relationship with the spirit that selects them. Um, can attempt to forge a working relationship because someone might have the crazy idea that they think they want to be a shaman. But the point is, if spirit doesn't select you, find another job. It's not yours to have. And that's really the bottom line. So these three characteristics are very powerfully and clearly illuminated in the words of an Eskimo shaman. I have some kind of favorite quotes, um, and this is definitely one of them. That it is not for a shaman to be able to escape both from himself and from his surroundings. It is not enough that, having the soul removed from his eyes, brain, and entrails, he is able also to withdraw the spirit from his body and thus undertake the great spirit flights through space and through the sea. Nor it is enough that by means of his powers, he abolishes all distance and can see things however far away. For he will be incapable of maintaining these faculties unless he has the support of helping and answering spirits. He must procure these helping spirits for himself. He must meet them in person. He cannot even choose for himself what sort he will have. They come to him of their own accord, strong and powerful. So the daily practices of a shaman are primarily to cultivate and maintain good relationship with the spirits and with the shaman's own spirit, you know, his or her own human spirit. That the shaman develops this relationship through communication and prayer and strengthens it through offerings and other practices of gratitude. If the spirits choose to leave, the shaman is left without the power to function as a shaman. Maintaining a stance of empowered humility is essential in the cultivation of a shaman's working relationship with spirit. So it's not about false humility and it's not about playing small because that's about one, you know, to play small is one of the quickest ways to get your helping spirits to abandon you because it makes you boring. You're not useful. And so it's not about being small or false humility, but it's about understanding as with any good working relationship, what is my job as the human? And what is spirit's job as this source of power? And how do I maintain right relationship with that? And that all I can really claim, you know, all the shaman can really claim is, is the cultivation of the relationship with themselves and their ability to manage themselves, to stay focused, to be accurate and to interpret correctly in, in more and more energetic and inst- intense state, altered states, or simply to interpret correctly in more and more complex energetic situations. And this, this really comes from greater and greater trust in the helping spirits and deeper and deeper ex, um, understanding gained through experience of how the helping spirits communicate, which the more you experience altered states and complex altered states, the more you recognize how many different levels the helping spirits are communicating on to help a human to grasp what is going on. And then how do you as a human translate that whole reality into something the person 
can use to heal, to understand, to integrate. You know, this is, this is about understanding how do you step up into that role to, to not play small and yet to still be humble, to step into your power and yet recognize where this power to make things happen is really coming from. So the most important thing then, or one of the many important things in a shaman's life, is these daily practices to maintain a good relationship with spirit, maintain a good relationship with one's own spirit. Because if the spirits do choose to leave, the shaman is left without the power to function as a shaman. And that's problematic if that's your big role identity in the world. So maintaining this stance of empowered humility is essential. The other thing that's important is that all working relationships with uh, spirit are experiential. However, they are not all the same quality of experience. They are very specific partnerships forged over time. And the one quality that is consistent among all the relationships forged between shamans and spirits is that they are ecstatic that they engage the universal power of the heart to connect to all things in a state of oneness. And that is the one unifying factor in this great diversity of altered state experiences with spirit in, in these sort of shamanic altered state experiences. And not all altered state experiences are shamanic. And that's another huge misunderstanding in contemporary time. We're having these crazy altered state experiences. We don't know what to call it, so we just call it shamanic as if shaman is the catch-all word for anything we don't understand. And that's not correct. That shamanic altered states are, are characterized by the fact that they remain task-focused, that we are able to accomplish, use what happens in non-ordinary reality to accomplish a desired change here in ordinary reality. So this, this oneness or this connection with all things, which is uh, the root of our need to restore balance, may be one explanation why the spirits help us. Because us being out of balance is frankly deadly for the entire world and all other living things. It may be the reason they come to help us. But whatever their reasons, they do come. The spirits contact us. They choose. They initiate and they train the shamans so that the shamans can help the humans, can help the environment, can help those who are coming and those who have left. So when contemporary shamans recreate the ancient shamanic practices that have lain dormant for centuries, often the first words from the spirits once they're contacted again after hundreds of years is, where have you been? It's as if, they, it's, it's as if we, the humans, have missed an appointment and have kept them, the spirits, from a very important engagement. And we see in this that what we do matters to the spirits, that this interdependence lies at the core of the working relationship between shamans and spirits. So the relationship between shaman and spirit is not idealized. It is not established in a search for enlightenment or personal ascension. It is not religious in that sense. It is a practical relationship that must work. It must be effective here in the realm of the living. The shaman must have the ability to enter the type of relationship needed to get the job done. 
the soul retrieval, the extraction, the depossession, and that the shaman must possess the personal power necessary to hold his or her own in this relationship, in these altered states. The shaman must also have great courage of heart to sustain action within the relationship and the clarity of vision to understand when the task is accomplished. To close the ritual and tell the people to go home. So if the shaman has all of this, then his or her relationship with spirit enables the shaman to do for humans what can't be done without the intervention of spirit. And it is through this practical working relationship with spirit that shamans perform what we see as miracles every day. So what's my point about the common misconceptions about the shaman and the shaman's power and who is a shaman and what makes someone a shaman and all these questions. Um, So the fact, my point is this, the fact that helping spirits come to you doesn't mean anything. That is what helping spirits do. We all have them. They come to us. They come to help us when we are in need. And the fact that you can journey or enter any altered state doesn't mean anything in and of itself. That's what humans do. We are designed to enter altered states. We need them to maintain our sanity and to come to understand what's really going on here. And the fact that you have had amazing transformational experiences with plant medicines doesn't mean anything either. That's what the plant spirits do. What's important in in the cultivation of the shamanic of a shaman's relationship with these spirits is that surrender of the small person to be able to serve this greater relationship. Because this greater relationship that really allows us to connect to these origin source energies and have that move through us in a way that is beneficial for other people is entirely blocked by our small personal agendas. So another way to think about it is this. Your spirit, your helping spirits can come and do something for you. But the purpose in, in them coming to do something for you that you're unable to do for yourself is to, to, is to give you the target to help you understand what it could be or to help you use that energy in that moment. But the important thing, the next step for you then is not to call on the spirits to give you that energy again, but to now go on the personal journey necessary to learn to access that energy yourself. And that's really the big distinction that I see happening in contemporary altered state activity, which may or may not be shamanic, but there's an awful lot of altered state activity going on these days, particularly in America. And what I see missing is this this realization of what it is that we're really coming into relationship with our helping spirits for. And what, what caliber of relationship with spirit actually distinguishes someone as the shaman. 
So what makes a shaman a shaman is being selected for something beyond just being human and working with your helping spirits. It involves being called, having a calling that's bigger than your small self, having a calling that requires you give up your small self to respond to it. It involves being tested. The spirits test for a clear heart and they kick out those who don't have it. It involves being initiated and it involves being trained. And even then, one must still work to maintain oneself and not fall into the many traps humans inevitably fall into in a long human life. So the most important element of initiation is the one people constantly overlook. I get this in phone sessions all the time. I've had an initiatory experience. Help me. Well, they're a mess after the initiatory experience. So in other words, it wasn't an initiatory experience. It was an altered state experience. You did not find your way through and you are now left as an energetic mess. That's not an initiation. It's an altered state experience. You didn't find your way through, right? The initiation is the one through which you heal yourself. You get yourself out of your own forest. And so what of these teachers that say we don't need initiation anymore? That all we need is the skills. Well, the rise of this belief system is directly proportional to the rise of the observation that shamans aren't as powerful as they used to be. Gee, I wonder why. Come on, people, think. Just because this is about spiritual things doesn't mean we get to stop thinking. Think. Why wouldn't we need what shamans have always needed? We live further from right relationship with all other living things than people did in the past. And we are psychologically fixated, stuck in our heads, and emotionally immature. So why wouldn't we need initiation more now than in the past? Why would we need it less? It doesn't make any sense at all. So what do you do when the spirits do come calling? Hmm? What do you do when they do come calling? Try to ignore them. What I see around me is people who are being called and then refusing and then their lives fall apart. And people who want to be called posing and harming others when they can't focus their way out of their own emotional baggage, much less an altered state. So my shout out around calling isn't so much those being called because frankly, it's really confusing these days, but to practitioners, what are we doing? What are you doing as shamans and teachers with people whose lives are falling apart because they can't figure out how to surrender to their calling? Are you running these people through the same become a shaman in 18 month program you went through? Come on people. You have got to think Even if you are being called and you're thrashing around in your confusion of that, you are unique. You have a unique energy moving through you. You need to be taught two things. You need to be taught to communicate directly and accurately with the energy that is moving through you, with the energy that is calling you. That's one thing you need. And you need to be taught to discern the distorting energies that are arising from within you from your old belief system and your unresolved past. Those are the two things that you need. And that's all you need to know. 
your helping spirits will teach you what you need to know to use the energy that you are being called to serve. You don't need to learn healing forms. You, need, you don't need someone else to tell you what is going on. You need to know what energy is moving through you before you even decide what healing forms might be effective for you and that energy to work with other people. It shouldn't be the other way around. It shouldn't be learn to journey and learn a bunch of healing forms, right? The forms and techniques are the least important. What matters is who are you working with? And what matters is how will you manage yourself in that relationship? And this is paramount because if you don't do this, you will always distort your information and that will harm others. And that is the most important thing to understand. When we are faking it, we are potentially harming others. And that is completely contrary to the reason that the spirits come to us in the first place. So all of this today was actually to set the stage for an answer to a question from a listener. Now, I'm not actually sure I've even understood the question, to be honest. Um, But hopefully, if I haven't, he'll tell me. (laughs) He'll email me and tell me I misunderstood it entirely. But this, this, this understanding of what does it really mean to strive for a truly shamanic working relationship with the helping spirits... And to understand that humans have relationship with helping spirits. Every human being should have some way to be in working relationship with their helping spirits because humans need it. We need it for our sanity. We need it to understand what the hell is going on here. That does not make us shamans. And so you shouldn't be afraid of doing that because you don't want to be a shaman. Believe me, I understand. There are a whole lot of days in my life I don't either. But humans need an altered state that they can rely on, that that makes us better humans. So we need to understand that doesn't make us shamans. So who should be, who is being called to be a shaman? What does that mean? What does that feel like? Most people are simply being called to grow up, to become an adult and to bring your gifts to the world. And it's got nothing to do with being a shaman. It's a particular quality, a particular standard of relationship with spirit and our ability to function in these altered states. So that was all the groundwork for this really juicy question this um, listener sent. And it goes kind of like this. The listener says, I see a particular duality of high self-esteem versus lack of self-worth in me and around me. I see it as much in spiritual circles as outside of them. So often I feel like I'm making a great spiritual progress because of an experience that gives me great self-esteem. And I seem to thrive by perpetuating this as if it is a tool. Um, In use is using my spiritual experience as a tool for self-esteem, a wise idea. I actually believe he would not have asked me this question if he didn't already know the answer. So is using my spiritual experiences as a tool for self-esteem, a wise idea? No. Am I missing something? Yes. So, so given everything I've already talked about today, how does that fit in with this? The reason using spiritual experiences as a tool for self-esteem is not a wise idea because these spiritual experiences are just 
the helping spirits showing you what is possible, lending you their energy for this moment so that you can refocus yourself on the task at hand. And then you must cultivate that capacity within yourself. You can't keep drawing on it from someone else or something else, that it's a house of cards. And what I have seen happen and bless the hearts of the people that ha- this happens to because most of them have been led down this path by teachers who told them this was, was the way to do it, is as soon as the really heavy shit comes down the pike in your healing session, that whole house of cards collapses. The helping spirits cannot give you anything permanently. The only thing that is permanent within you is those things which you have transformed such that you can manifest yourself. And this is the important quality in the, in the relationship with spirit. And some would say, well, then if I've transformed, I don't need the helping spirits anymore, which shows to me someone's actually never really connected with a helping spirit. Because remember, this goes back to the sacred origin of all things. I am never going to know enough or manifest enough in a human lifetime to be bigger than the sacred origin of all things, which is frankly a great mystery. So, There's room to grow, people. (laughs) So is he missing something? Yes. So let's talk about that. So he says, "Um, I observe this powerful duality in myself and others. This chasing the self-esteem or running from the lack of self-worth seems to drive or direct people through their lives, so to speak. And I don't want it to be the driving force in my own life. Hallelujah. And I'm asking for how to approach healing this. So we have this, these profound experiences with spirit. And we have these profound experiences so that we can come to know ourselves, to know what is possible, to imagine, to, to experience, not to, to imagine and experience something together so that we can believe in all facets of our knowing that this is possible. And the experience... Uh, from spirit in and of itself is not the point. We get those gifts all the time. It in and of itself doesn't mean anything until you can get there on your own. And then they are showing you what is possible within you and within your experience. So I actually was sitting with a client this weekend and she said it so beautifully. She said her life was falling apart and she said, I have had ecstasy and bliss and ecstatic experiences more than most people will have in a lifetime. And she wasn't bragging. I believed every minute of it more than I'd probably had in my lifetime. And she looked at me and said, but so what? My life is falling apart. And she was right. So what? None of this in and of itself matters if it doesn't begin to guide you in how you choose to live your life. So you have this experience and it's like a target. And now you need to find the path to get yourself there. The first thing you need to do is to give up the false sense of self-esteem that has come through the experience itself. And you need to get real because you can't figure out the next step on your path from a false platform. The next step on your path requires rigorous self-honesty, 
What is my true current reality in this moment? Where do I really stand within myself? Because the next step that's going to get you anywhere has to step from where you're standing, not from where you'd like to be. So your path begins where you are. And you have to be willing to know where you are honestly. And so the first step on the path to get to what that ecstatic state gave you is to drop the egoic false sense that that even mattered at all. And then you can strike out on the path. If you don't drop that false sense of self-esteem, you're not on the path. You're stepping into abyss from a false platform. But if you can be honest and you can strike out on the path and you can ask spirit, what's the first step? And this is the biggest problem. This is the biggest mistake people make. They keep asking, what's my soul's purpose? What's my soul's purpose? What's my soul's purpose? And some people even get answers, bless their hearts. But that's really far out there from a life that's collapsing. The question is, what's my next step? And you stand there in that journey and demand an answer you can act on. Action legitimate, real actions based on where you really are in current reality. Not a small self negative version of where you are in current reality, but a reality based version of where you are in current reality. You have to step from where you are if you want any traction in manifesting anything in the world. So who will you meet along the way of this path towards being able to truly manifest this quality you've experienced already with spirit world? The first person you will meet along the way of this journey is your lack of self-worth. And this is the beginning of learning to control yourself in relationship with your altered states. How do you deal with this meeting of self? How you deal with this meeting of self will define everything. Will you turn from yourself and seek the next high altered state? Running from the truth of your lack of self-worth, running from the truth of yourself. Will you set up this duality, this either or, these see this as these two antagonizing states of being. I can't possibly deal with who I really am. So I'm going to fly back and seek another high altered state because that false sense of self-esteem felt so much better than being honest about who I really am. Bailing, as it were, from the very thing that is used to initiate people. Or... On this path, when you meet your lack of self-worth, will you greet yourself with honor and respect? The respect due to a part of yourself that has the power to entirely shape your life as your lack of self-worth has. Will you remember that this is the path that spirit set you on when you could see your target? Spirit gave you the target and set you on this path, and it has brought you this companion on the journey. Will you remember the basic truth that we are one with all things, and in that oneness with all things, we are innately worthy? Will you bail on yourself again, or will you say, come with me? I am on a journey to discover my value my uniqueness, my purpose. 
and you are the first ally I have met on this path. Shall we go? So thank you, everyone, for joining me this week. I give thanks to the ancestors who've gathered around us here today, to the earth below, the sky above, the heart that unites us all, and to all of those helping spirits who come to us, no matter how foolish we are, come to us again and again and again, that we might wake up to the people, the men and the women that we have come here to be. Thanks for listening this week. Have a great, have a great week, everyone.